turn to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21. Colossians 3, 21. I remember the moment that my first child was born. There were some complications that led to an emergency C-section. Once for hours, we were in the, in the normal room waiting patiently. And then all of a sudden, doctors and nurses were rushing in and wheeling my wife to have surgery. As we sat there nervously trying to calm our nerves, the surgery actually went off without a hitch. Soon the baby was born, and there we were watching the nurses uh, clean the baby and weigh the baby and do all of the things they need to do until finally she swaddled that baby and handed her to me. And the way that she handed the baby to me indicated that she wasn't just handing me the baby for a few moments and then I was going to give the baby back and they were going to do some more things. It was clear that she was handing this baby to me as if to say, here, she is now your responsibility. Now, I, I love babies. I, I always have. I love to hold them. I love to sing to them. I love to make them smile. But this was different. Suddenly, a wave of excitement and, and terror all at the same time came over me. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, like, that's it? Like, that's all? No instructions, you know, feed them at this time and do this. It's just, here you go, congratulations. We had to figure it all out. There wasn't this step-by-step -step manual. It was up to my wife and I to, to figure out how to take care of our children's physical needs. And it turns out, by God's grace, they're alive and well today. But I want to encourage us this morning that while there, there may not be a manual that they give you in the hospital that tells you exactly what to do to care for your child's physical needs. There, there is a manual of instruction in the scripture for us when it comes to shepherding the hearts of our children and how God intends for us as parents to, to guide them and to teach them and to train them. And so whether you are a parent or a grandparent or hope to be a parent or plan to be around kids in your life, there are truths in the scripture that will help us today to know how to fulfill the roles that God has given to us. As you know, we're in Colossians chapter 3 looking at the family, the Christian home, and what are the relationships in the Christian home and how are they to operate. For the sake of context, let's read our text again, Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 18. It says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And then finally, chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, grant to your slaves justice, in fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. What we've seen over the last several weeks is that Paul takes the Christian home, particularly the Christian home in his time period, in his context, and he, he breaks down the, the major relationships within the home. 
He begins with the primary human relationship in the home, which was the marriage relationship. And he speaks first to the wives, then to the husbands. And then last week we began a a new section where he begins to speak to the, the next most important relationship in the home, which is parents and children. So we looked at his instructions to children in verse 20 last week. And today we, of course, are looking at his instruction to parents. And then he goes on to talk about servants and masters who would have been a part of the the home at that time. Now, we've noticed that these go in order of priority, these relationships. We've also noticed that he begins with the person who is under authority and then speaks to the person who's been delegated authority. In this relationship of parents and children, it's the children who are to submit to their parents' authority. And now we have instructions as parents on how we are to use the authority God's given us in a way that would please him and honor him. And so look back at verse 21 specifically. This simple verse will be the the heart of our instruction today. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. If you want to know what the theme is, it's really simple. Parents must exercise their authority in a way that does not provoke their children to anger. Parents must exercise their authority in a way that does not provoke their children to anger. And notice that Paul begins, as he often does, with a clear, simple command. Here's the command. Do not provoke your children. Do not provoke your children. He begins with this title, fathers. And that's a Greek term that can be used and is used in other contexts just to mean parents. And I I think that's the idea here. He's not saying only the fathers have this responsibility, but also mothers. But it's also not without um, importance that he says specifically fathers. Because throughout this text, he's been emphasizing the fact that it is the father that is to lead in the home in every way. He's to lead his wife. And even here in the parental relationship, while both parents are delegated the task of raising their kids in a way that honors the Lord, it is ultimately the father who is responsible for the atmosphere in the home, for the spiritual atmosphere in the home, for the discipline and and, and, and instruction in the home. It's the father who will be held accountable for these things. And so what that means, men, is that we can't take this task lightly. We may not simply delegate the children to our wives and tell them to deal with it. We, we may not let them be the bad guy all day long and come home from work and just be the hero who only has fun and only says nice things. And when it's time for discipline, they go to mom. That is not acceptable in the sight of God. We are accountable to lead our wives in the training of our children. It is true that in, in most of our households, It is our wives who will spend the bulk of the day with our children. But that does not mean that we are to delegate that role entirely to them. We're to be in regular communication with our wives, shepherding our wives, supporting our wives as they spend that time with our children. I do want to say, just as a side note, that I realize that in in God's providence, we, we may have some in our church who are raising their children alone without a spouse. And let me just say to you that God will be faithful to you, if that is you, that you can raise your children in a way that would honor the Lord, even as a single mom or a single dad. 
But clearly in the scriptures, the, the plan, the model that God has designed for the home is to have a, a husband and a wife working together to raise their children. You know, what's interesting is I was studying this week, we think about parenting a lot because if you're a parent, it takes up a lot of your time and your effort and your thoughts. And yet in the New Testament, there really are only two passages that speak directly to parents. There, there are passages that give principles and that, that sort of indirectly give some information, but there are really only two passages that give direct commands to parents. It's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. And what's really interesting is that both passages begin with the exact same command. You think, of all the things that God would want to communicate to us in the New Testament about being a parent, what would be at the top of the list? Well, I think we have the answer to that. Because here in Colossians chapter 3 and also in Ephesians 6, he begins with the exact same command. Parents, do not exasperate your children. This is a key instruction in the mind of Paul. It's a key instruction in the mind of God. So what in the world does the word exasperate mean? Because that's not a word that we use very often. Here's the definition. To exasperate is to cause someone to react in a way that suggests acceptance of a challenge. Arouse, provoke. It's the idea of provoking someone to respond in anger. You might think of of two men who are provoking one another into a fight. That's the idea. It's, it's provoking them. It's exasperating them. It's stirring up within them anger where they're tempted to, be, to re- respond to you in a sinful way. Notice Ephesians 6 begins the same way. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. It's a different Greek word, but the exact same idea. And it's a present active command here. We've talked about this all the time. That means this is to be our our continual way of life as parents. We are to continually put our effort towards raising our children in a way that we do not provoke them to anger. And this is a helpful reminder for us as parents to remember that while we have authority over our children, it is a delegated authority. We do not have ultimate rule over our children to do whatever we please, but we are under the authority of God himself and we're accountable to God for how we use the authority he's given to us. We are stewards. We, we stand in the place of God in the sense that we are his representatives to our kids as the most immediate authority in their lives, but not to use it in any way that we want. And I think the fact that both of these texts in the New Testament, begin with this command, shows us that this will be our temptation. Every single parent or grandparent or person who watches a child for more than 30 minutes will be tempted towards this sin to provoke them to anger. So what are some of the ways that we can commit this sin? Because I'm, uh, perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm, maybe I do that, but I'm, I'm not sure what I'm doing that does that. Well, I came up with a short list of 19 examples <laughs> of ways that we, th- that we can easily do this. Just, we're going to run through these quickly, but just to get in your head, what does it mean? How, how can we practically commit this sin? Here's, here's one way, heavy-handed leadership. Just having a, he- a heavy hand in your home, a domineering presence where everyone's on eggshells around mom and dad because you never know when they're going to snap. 
Number two, a, a failure to praise and reward their successes. How easy is it to just be on them all day and pointing out every little thing they do wrong without ever telling them when they've done well, without ever coming along when they've succeeded or even tried and halfway succeeded, trying to find things that we can praise in them? How about no, neglect of physical and verbal affirmation? Not being willing to hug them or be close to them, not being willing to, to say that you love them and to tell them that you're proud of them and thankful that God put them in your home. How about embarrassing them by disciplining them in front of others? Let me ask you, just think of it this way. What are the things that authorities in your life do that provoke you to want to respond in anger? How would you like it, men, if your boss called you out in front of all of your coworkers instead of taking you into private and telling you what you've done wrong? And yet how often with our kids do we just handle it right there in the moment for the whole world to see? Number five, comparing them to others. Why can't you just be like so-and-so? It's a quick way to exasperate your children. How about favoritism among siblings? How did that work out for Jacob and Joseph? Didn't go so well. What about inconsistency in rules and standards? It's very frustrating for a child when they get a spanking for something on Monday that's not even mentioned on Tuesday, that maybe gets a, a sly remark on Wednesday and then back to a spanking on Thursday. They have no idea where they stand. They don't know where the boundaries are and they don't know how to be because you act, react differently depending on your mood rather than a consistent standard. How about unreasonable or thoughtless or selfish rules and standards? Sometimes we ask our kids to do things that we know will take them 20 minutes, but we tell them, you've got two minutes, and if it's not done, when I get in there, you're getting a spanking. Unreasonable. We're not really treating them with thoughtfulness. How about number nine, demanding immediate repentance from them while never repenting ourselves. We want them to own their sin. We want them to tell the truth. We want them to, to, to speak up and say they're sorry. And yet often they see us sin over and over again, even towards them, and we're unwilling to humble ourselves and repent. How about just hypocrisy? We expect them to live to a certain standard of righteousness while we ourselves live by a different code. How about disciplining by yelling, insulting, or intimidation? Failure to match your style of discipline with their age. Sometimes we, we, we struggle as parents because they're still our kids, even though they're 16 or 17. It's, you see them as your little one that you held in your arms. But let me tell you, if you treat your 16-year-old with discipline the way you treat your 5-year-old, you will exasperate your 16-year-old. Our, our discipline, our instruction, our treatment of them has to grow with their age. How about disciplining and anger? Maybe they, you know, this is so convicting to me. Sometimes I, I see myself disciplining my child, committing the sin that I'm getting on to them for committing. Why would you respond that way to your brother or your sister? You mean the way you're responding to me right now? It's convicting. Responding in anger. Number 14, relational neglect. I'm just not really caring to spend much time with them. A few more. How about just allowing them to rule the home? If you want to exasperate your child, just let them do whatever they want and then one day ask them to do something and see if they don't get upset. 
Our kids are not made to be in charge, but if we let them be in charge, it will ultimately be for their downfall. How about disciplining without instruction? Just always giving a quick correction, but never explaining to them how to grow, how to change, how to do differently. Confusing age-appropriate behavior with disobedience. Your kid spills the milk when they're three, and, and you get angry, and you treat them with, with harshness when, when, in fact, they're, they're just learning to use a cup. It's normal for a three-year-old to do that. Two more. Neglecting discipline altogether, just failing to be consistent and faithful in the role God's given. And then finally, treating them harshly out of frustration over something else. Your day hasn't gone well. It's been hard. You're, maybe you and your spouse are not quite on the same page. And so that comes out in how you respond to your kids. These are just some examples. We could go on and on. But I, I listed so many because I think we hear these commands and we think, okay, I'm sure I probably do that, but I don't really know how. Well, these are some of the ways. These are ways to evaluate our parenting style and how we treat our kids to see are we exasperating, are we stirring up anger within them in the way that we treat them. And understand that not one of us has made it through parenting without committing at least one, if not many, of these sins. We need the gospel as well. Also, let me just say, it doesn't mean that if your child gets angry when you discipline or correct them that it's always your fault. Sometimes they just get upset because they don't like the punishment. They're not happy with it. But what Paul is saying here is that we need to evaluate if our style of leadership, the way we're using our authority, is provoking that response. Or is it just a sinful response because they don't like that they got caught. Really, to think about it this way, what we need to do is, is take the wisdom of the Proverbs and how to communicate with people in a way that honors God and apply that to our kids. So let me give you a couple of examples about Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's a good one. What about Proverbs 15.18? A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. That is, they think before they respond. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. They just, they feel it, and so here it comes. Finally, Proverbs 12, 18, there's one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. How do you use your mouth in communication with your children or just people in general? Are you speaking in a way that honors the Lord? You see, I think sometimes we fail to treat our children as if they are, are equal image bearers of God who deserve the same treatment that any other human being deserves. We can be tempted to speak down to our children because after all, they're our kids and we're in charge and they are not and they need to get that. Now understand, we are in charge and we are to raise them up in the Lord. But they are human beings made in the image of God. And so the way that we do that matters very much. It matters very much to our God who made us. Paul says that we're to exercise our authority as those who are under authority. In fact, this is what he'll say to masters later in Colossians chapter 4. He says, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Why? Knowing that you too have a master in heaven. The same is true for us with our kids. It's just another reminder that, that God calls us not only to do the right thing, 
but to do the right thing in the right way. The motivation and the manner in which we do things matters as Christians. Now, there is a specific goal that Paul has in mind. As he commands us to to treat our kids this way, here's the goal. He says, to prevent discouragement. To prevent discouragement. Look back at verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that, that is for this reason, so that they will not lose heart. That Greek word there translated lose heart, here's the definition for that word. It means to become disheartened to the extent of losing motivation, to be discouraged, to lose heart, to become dispirited. Paul's point is that when when we as parents routinely exasperate our children, what happens in the end is that child just loses the will to obey because ultimately they cannot please you. Nothing they do is ever enough They get criticized at every turn, and so ultimately they just shut down. They lose heart. That kind of unbiblical leadership crushes the spirit of our kids. It squelches their motivation to please. Think about it this way. If a child is is constantly being criticized or corrected at every turn, even when they're trying to obey, they don't know what to do. They don't know what else to try. And so why try at all? Martin Luther says this, spare the rod and spoil the child. That is true. But beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he's done well. An exasperated child will give up. They'll either become despondent and just lacking motivation, or depending on their bent, they may just become hard-hearted and rebellious altogether. Douglas Moo says, Paul does not want us to see the children, want to see the children of Christian families disciplined to such an extent that they lose heart and simply give up trying to please their parents. I'm sorry, but these are convicting truths. We don't want to see our kids discouraged to the point that they no longer know how to obey or want to obey. We want them to know they're loved, even in our discipline. Now, in Colossians, Paul only deals with this negative command, what we're to avoid. But in Ephesians, in the parallel passage, he goes beyond what we're to avoid and gives us the positive of what we are to do. I think it's important for us to understand that as well. So we're going to really study these passages together as a unit. And so listen to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, the same command we just had, but... Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul begins again with the negative, what we're not to do, but then he turns to this positive command. And here's the command, bring them up. Literally, it means raise them, but raise them in an intentional way. Put your effort actively, it's a present active command, continually be bringing them up. And he gives two crucial ways in which we do that, discipline and instruction. Discipline and instruction. But before we look at both of those words, I want you to look at the phrase at the end there that modifies both of those words. He he ends, of the Lord. The discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now that's crucial for us to understand because as we said before, we we don't have the right to draft our own agenda for our kids. We're We're not to be setting our own goals and our own objectives for them outside of the objectives that God has set for them. 
We're to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the goal. That has to be our heart's desire. Ted Tripp says in his wonderful book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, that our task as parents is to raise our kids in accordance with the end for which God created them. And so I'll ask you, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why God made us. It's why God made you. It's why we're on the planet. And I like the fact that Ted Tripp says, really, that is the goal. We are to raise our kids in a way that they understand how to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Remember Colossians 1, 15 and 16. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's why we were made, for Christ. Through him he made us, but we're also made for him. That is for his glory. That's why you exist. And so you see, it's easy for us to get distracted by other goals that we impose upon our kids. We get distracted by wanting them to have academic success or athletic success or financial success or social success. And we can add to that list over and over again. And don't get me wrong, we are tasked as parents to raise our kids to be ready to leave and live as responsible adults. That is part of our role. But that in and of itself is always subservient to the key role of raising them to understand who God is and why they were made to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That is, we're to raise them according to his truth, his character, and his mission. These are of the Lord. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the two words specifically, discipline and instruction. Because if that's to be the content of our parenting, we need to understand what that means. Here's a definition for the word discipline. It's the act of providing guidance for responsible living. It can be translated upbringing or training or instruction. And in, in the scriptures, chiefly, it's attained by discipline and correction. MacArthur says it this way, discipline has to do with the overall training of children, including punishment. And so the word discipline obviously includes punishments and consequences for disobedience, but it goes beyond that. It includes this idea of training our kids. Think of the way we use the word discipline when we talk about bodily discipline. A person who's on a diet or they're going to the gym. What we mean is they have some regimen, some boundaries they've made for themselves to discipline their bodies to achieve a, a certain goal. That's what, how we're to think about disciplining our kids. It's not just the consequence. It is the whole program that God would have us put into place to provide boundaries and guidance for them to know how to live and how not to live. And yes, when they step outside of those bounds, there ought to be an appropriate thoughtful consequence as well as blessing and praise when they do what we've asked. Those consequences will, by the way, change as a child ages and matures. In the younger years, the primary form of discipline that we use is a controlled spanking for a child. But as they grow and that becomes more and more inappropriate or less effective, we, we have other options of either removing privileges or adding responsibilities, but either way, we are to be disciplining our kids. The Proverbs are filled with admonitions 
for loving our kids by consistent discipline. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him gently. You know, some parents mistakenly think that they love their kids too much to spank them. They just love them too much. They couldn't do that. But the scriptures explain that that kind of thinking is exactly the opposite. It says, if you love your child, you will discipline them. Listen to Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen: Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs nineteen, eighteen: Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Now, what do you say? Why would I desire his death? What he's saying is, you, if you refuse to, to discipline your child, then you allow them to become the fool. And they will ruin their lives. And in the Old Testament could even end up cursing their parents to the point of being put to death for that sin. He says, don't do it. Love them enough to discipline them and teach them the dangers of rebellion. That's what it looks like to love our children. Now, it is true that we are to discipline our kids, but that's not all. There's another important word here. It's the word instruction. The word instruction means counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct, admonition or instruction. Listen to to what Kittle says about this, one of my favorite uh, Greek lexicons. It says, the verb means to impart understanding, to set right, to lay on the heart. The stress is on influencing not merely the intellect, but the will and disposition. The word thus acquires such senses as to admonish, to warn, to remind, and to correct. And so it is true that God has given us as parents the the intentional command to create parameters and boundaries by which our kids must live. That is discipline. But he's also called us to teach our kids, to instruct our kids. And actually discipline and instruction are not mutually exclusive, but go hand in hand. They walk together. When your child disobeys, the biblical response is not to simply give them a swift punishment and be done. I think that's why some people are so so put off by the idea of spanking because in their mind what a spanking is is your child disobeys and you hit your kid immediately. That's not what the Bible means by spanking. I was reminded of this by a story that one of my professors in seminary shared with us when he and his wife had become part of the foster care program, as I know many of you have, and we're, we're taking kids into their home as part of that system. And if, as you know, if, if, you, if you do that, you're not allowed to spank those children. But they also had biological kids in their home that were their children, and so with their kids, they, they would lovingly take them aside, explain to them what they've done, and give them a, a reasonable, controlled spanking. And this child that they had in their home, this foster child, saw this happen for months with the other children. And this foster child came from a very abusive, physically abusive background. And so he knew what it was to be abused. Thankfully, they came to a point where they were able to adopt this child into their family. And so once the adoption process was finalized, they they set the little boy down and explained to him that he was now a part of their family, that they loved him, and they were going to treat him like every other member of the family, which meant that when he disobeyed, that he would have to have a spanking like the other children. And that little child who had been so badly abused said, Oh, I've never been spanked before. 
because he could instinctively tell the difference between what they had been doing with their kids and the abuse that he had received in his former home. That's the way a real spanking is to be. It's, it is not just a, a swift hitting of our children. It's an opportunity to sit down with them and to bring discipline and instruction together into that moment. And where do we find the content for this instruction that we're supposed to be giving our kids? How about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? It says, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable. For what? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Aren't those the things that we want to do with our kids? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The scriptures then are the source of our instruction to our children. After all, remember, it's the instruction of the Lord. It comes from the scriptures. We're to give them his words and his thoughts and his commands and chiefly his gospel. That's to be the source of our instruction to our kids. Well, you might say, what does that look like exactly? Am I supposed to be having these long Bible studies? Do we, what do we just get Grudem systematic and start taking my five-year-old through that? Like, what, what, what do I do to instruct my kids? Well, thankfully, this command is not the only command in the Bible that deals with how to instruct our children. In fact, it's really a summary of probably the most famous passage in the Bible on how to instruct our kids, which comes to us in the Old Testament, the great Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so I want to spend just a few moments talking about this passage because it fills out this idea of instructing our kids in the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now this is a passage just for context that's written to Moses. Remember, we have the, the first rendition of the law when, when they come out of uh, Egypt, there in, in Exodus and then Leviticus, we have the giving of the law to the people of Israel. But then they wander around the desert for some 40 years, and now they're about to enter into the promised land, and they get the law again a second time. Deuteronomy is that second giving of the law. And here, he's explaining to them how it is that they can succeed in the promised land. Remember, Israel had this covenant where if they obeyed God, they were blessed. If they didn't obey God, they were cursed, which ultimately would be ex expulsion from the land. Now, we are not Israel, uh, but there are some principles here that we can glean from this that will help us understand how we're to operate in our homes. We're not in danger of being kicked out of the promised land, but we do want to understand how is it that we can train our children. And he says that here. He says, first of all, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He draws our attention to really the first commandment, that there is only one God, and, and he alone is worthy of our worship. But next in verses 5 to 6, he calls our attention to the need for us as parents to have personal devotion and love for God. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Now this is crucial. If you don't hear anything else I say and you're a parent this morning, hear this. We cannot skip verses 5 and 6. So often we just go right to verse 7 on what we're supposed to do with our kids. But if you don't have verses 5 and 6, you can't do verse 7. The very first step is not to begin thinking about the behavioral changes that you want to see in your kids. The first thing you have to ask yourself, parents, is do you really love the Lord your God with your entire being? And is your heart and mind filled with the truth of his word? That's where it begins. That's where godly parenting begins. We have to be committed to this God and Savior, Jesus Christ, before we can lead our kids to do the same. To attempt to lead our children in devotion to God without first personally devoting ourselves is hypocrisy. And what that will create in your kids is not a devotion to God, but a repulsion of those things because all they see is, is like the Pharisees. The, the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is full of wicked deeds. We can't lead our kids in godliness if we're unwilling to go there first ourselves. But after that, after we are being sure that we are pursuing the Lord, that we're loving the Lord, then he gives the explanation of how we instruct our kids. And I love this. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Verses 7 to 9 explain this word instruct back in Ephesians. How do we instruct our kids? This is what it looks like. It begins with us loving the Lord our God, filling our heart and mind with the truth of Scripture so that that begins to naturally pour out of us. So that then in every avenue of life, we're suddenly turning everything into a conversation about God, his truth, and the gospel. That's how it works. So many families get wrapped up in judging their faithfulness and in instructing their kids with whether or not they had an official Bible family worship time that day. And don't mishear me. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good practice to put in place by and large. But I will say that this, that's not what is being taught here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. What's being taught here is much more than 10 or 20 minutes of daily Bible time with your kids. What's being taught here is living a godly life and having such a godly perspective that you filter everything through the scriptures. And that comes out in how you talk to your kids. So for example, you see a sunrise and your heart is drawn to worship the wonderful creator that made that. And so you start talking to your kids about how good God is. And look at that sunrise that he made for us today. You're driving down the road and you pass a car accident and immediately you begin to say, kids, let's pray for those people. Let's pray that God would be glorified, that the gospel would be made clear to them, that they know the Lord Jesus Christ and that he would be with them. You, you, you continue on throughout the day and you, you accidentally, you sin against your kids and your attitude. Well, you have an opportunity to say, I'm going to repent to the Lord. I'm going to repent to you because that dishonored the Lord. When you sit down to a meal, you take time not just to pray this rehearsed prayer that you always pray, but to truly take a moment with your family and give praise to the God who has so graciously supplied this food for you and everything else that you have in your home. 
When your child comes running in from playing with the neighbor and their feelings are hurt because of a mean comment that was said, you have an opportunity to teach them about the true forgiveness of Jesus Christ and how to love your enemies and pray for them. Even when the the pet hamster dies for the third time, you have an opportunity to talk about life and death and say, you know what, as human beings, we too one one day will die, but that is not the end. And let me tell you about that. You see, this is what it looks like when we love the Lord our God and we love his word and it fills us up to the point that we're just brimming over and ready to talk to our kids about everything. When we rise up, when we lie down, as we're on the way, we talk about the truth. And so certainly set aside time, have official time where you're in the word and you're memorizing scripture, do that absolutely. But listen, I I have seen families can be committed to that, and yet their parents spend the rest of the day tearing down those 10 or 15 minutes that they taught their kids by the way they live their life. What's much more important is that we have a consistent Christ-like character throughout the day and that we're teaching our kids at every turn the truth. Parents, let me ask you gently, does your life represent the gospel and the truth of scripture to your children. Perhaps you're here this morning and this lesson's hitting home on every front because you realize that far from raising your children according to the scriptures, you've been exasperating them at every turn. Perhaps you realize that you've had one standard for them and yet an entirely different standard for yourself. Well, let me ask you this morning, do you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you personally come to the place where you really recognize you're a sinner before a holy God, that you're not good, that you you can't do enough good things to make yourself right with God? And have you come to understand that God in his grace and kindness has made a way for you to be made right, not through you being good, but by sending his perfect son who was good in every way, to live the life that we should have lived in our place and then to die on the cross on purpose as a sacrifice for sin for those who would would come and repent of their sin and put their faith in him. And then he rose again from the grave, affirming that he had accomplished that task, that the father was pleased with his sacrifice. Understand, if if you want to be a a good parent, that's, that's wonderful. But it begins with you and the Lord. You have to come to a place where you personally have put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And only then will God, through the Spirit and through his word, begin to change you, transform you, so that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength in growing measure. And you can begin to see the world through a gospel lens and through the scripture so that you're turning conversations to the truth with your kids. But it begins with you personally humbling yourself and repenting before the Lord. And if you will do that, here's the good news. If you will do that, God will begin to change you. And even if you are here this morning and you're lamenting these truths because your kids are already grown and they're out of the house and you look back and you say, oh, if only we had done this, if only we had done this, understand that if you're still alive, God's not done. And you have an opportunity now to have an impact even on your adult kids and grandkids as the gospel gets a hold of you and you begin to show true, genuine love to them. 
So while it's my prayer that you have, if you have young children, you'll begin to put these things in place from the time that they can remember, even if you miss that window, all is not lost. God can still do a great work. And let me just say this. Nowhere in the scriptures does it promise that, parents, if you do these things, your kids will be saved. The truth is, we're called to be faithful and trust the Lord, and it's God who saves. I know people who have grown up in wonderful households with godly parents who, who just wore out the carpet with their knees in tears praying for their salvation, and they've walked away from the Lord. And I know other kids who come from abusive backgrounds or abandonment by their parents who love Jesus and are walking with him. God saves. God does that work. Our role is to be faithful and to leave the rest to the Lord. And he will do what is right and good. And so this morning, if you're in Christ and you're a parent and you're, you're wanting to apply these things to your life, let me just draw our attention to two quick applications. Number one, it's obvious, but evaluate your approach to parenting. Evaluate your approach. And I chose that word approach on purpose because what I'm getting at is not just are you doing all the right things and telling them the right things, but wh what's the manner in which you're doing those things? Are you exercising your authority in a way that's provoking them to anger, to respond in rebellion against your authority? And as you go through and, and you look at how you've been parenting and, and you inevitably come across areas where you need to grow, let me encourage you to do two things. If there are specific places where you know you've been failing in this, Repent first to the Lord, and then sit down with your kids and repent to them. If there have been patterns in your life of sinning against your kids, sit down and tell them that and repent. You have no idea how that can affect a little heart to see the humility of parents. I, I, my goal in my house is to be the, the lead repenter, that my kids will learn repentance by hearing me repent in front of them and to them. Because understand, what our kids need is not perfect parents. If that's what they need, then we're all doomed because they're not going to get that in our houses, right? What they need is to understand that there is a perfect Savior, that they're not going to live up to the standard. They're not going to live up to God's standard. They're not going to live up to our standards. And guess what? When your kids sin and when you sin, the red carpet's just rolled out for the gospel, and so we've got to be careful not to just get angry when our kids disobey. Expect them to disobey. Expect that they're not going to do it right. And there's an opportunity to not only give a consequence and correct them, but to saturate it with the gospel. Sometimes your older kids may come to a point and they, 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 you can tell they really want to do right, but they just can't. And it's a chance to come along and say, I know you can't. That's why we need Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him again. Evaluate your approach and humble yourself if you need to and repent to your kids. Rip down the facade of perfection that you put before them and point them to the truly perfect one, the one they really need. Secondly, evaluate your discipline and instruction. Evaluate your discipline and instruction. So not only the way in which you're parenting, but the content. Have you put clear boundaries in place? Do your kids really know what the expect expectations of the home are? Or is it just kind of changing with your mood every day? 
It's really hard to live under those kind of conditions. What about your instruction? Just ask yourself, when's the last time your kids heard the gospel from your mouth? When's the last time? When's the last time you used an ordinary life event to teach them truth about the scriptures, about God? Are you allowing other priorities and goals to to trump the most important priorities and goals in your life? I don't want to harp on this, but I do want to say because athleticism and sports are such a part of our culture, and I love them as, as much as anyone. I enjoy watching a game and, or playing a game. But it, it's become such a thing in our culture that, that oftentimes we can get mixed up in that. We've got our kids going every weekend. They're playing here and they're playing there. And, and we're telling them, hey, God's most important. The gospel's most important. The church is most important. But when they see you three Sundays out of the month, taking them on the road to play baseball or football, what they hear are your words, but what they will believe is your actions. Put the right priorities in place. If you're a homeschool parent and you've, you've taken that opportunity to have that extended time with your kids, it, it's not just about their academics. I hope that they're getting good academics, but those are opportunities for the gospel to be more prevalent in their lives. So don't waste it. Don't waste it. Lastly, fathers, I would encourage you especially to evaluate the atmosphere in your home. And if you've been failing in supporting your wife in the way that you should and giving direction and being involved, then repent of that and take responsibility for the role God's given you and watch how your home flourishes and functions in the way that God intends. Not perfectly, but in the right direction. Now, obviously, this is not an exhaustive message on parenting. There is so much more that we could say, so many practical things we could say. Um, There are some resources I want to point you to in our bookstore afterwards. If you've never read Shepherding a Child's Heart, you really need to read that book. Um, It just lays a good foundation. But there are a couple of other books as well in our bookstore that would be a benefit to you, regardless of the age of your kids. Avail yourself of those. But the key is the gospel for yourself and for your kids. And so let's begin there. With that in mind, let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are, as always, convicting things for, things for us because it's just really easy, if we're honest, to see the many ways we fail. So Lord, we pray you would help us to be faithful, to be more faithful in our parenting to give our maximum effort, but also help us not to put our faith for our kids in our efforts, but in you. And help us to encourage them to put their faith, not in us, but in you. We pray that you'd help us to have homes that are saturated with the gospel, with husbands who are lovingly leading their wives and their kids, with wives who are committed to submitting to and respecting their husbands, and parents who are a team lovingly shepherding their kids with with humility and grace and patience and with consistency, that the gospel might rule in our homes and in our hearts. That's our prayer. We ask that you would help us in these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.